Good evening. Biden orders new control measures, gun control measures. A young activist speaks to WBAI about his White House experience. A medical expert on George Floyd's last breath and the East Side Coastal Resiliency Project faces renewed opposition. And today is Holocaust Remembrance Day. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, April 8th, 2021. President Joe Biden and his attorney general, Merrick Garland, announced limited measures to tackle gun violence in the United States on Thursday and what the United States described as a first step to curb mass shootings, community bloodshed and suicides. Today, I'm announcing several initial steps my administration is taking to curb this epidemic of gun violence. First, want to rein in the proliferation of so-called ghost guns. These are guns that are homemade, built from a kit and include directions on how to finish the firearm. You can go buy the kit. They have no serial numbers, and the buyers aren't required to pass a background check to buy the kit. You know, I want to see these kits treated as firearms under the Gun Control Act. The second action we're going to take, we also have to ask the Justice Department to release a new annual report. This report will better help policymakers address firearms trafficking as it is today not what it was yesterday. The third change, we want to treat pistols modified with stabilizing braces with the seriousness they deserve. That's what the alleged shooter in Boulder appears to have done. That these modifications to firearms that make them more lethal should be subject to the National Firearms Act. The National Firearms Act requires that a potential owner pay $200 fee and submit their name and other identifying information to the Justice Department. Fourthly, I wanted to make it easier for states to adopt extreme risk protection order laws. They're also called red flag laws. Which these laws allow a police or family member to petition a court in their jurisdiction and say, I want you to temporarily remove from the following people any firearm they may possess because they're a danger and a crisis. They're presenting a danger to themselves and to others. More than half of all suicides, for example, involve the use of a firearm. States that have red flag laws have seen reduction in the number of suicides in their states. Every single month, by the way, an average of 53 women are shot and killed by an intimate partner. We know red flag laws can have significant effect in protecting women from domestic violence. Biden also outlined more ambitious goals that he needs the support of Congress to accomplish, including reintroducing a ban on assault weapons, lifting an exemption on lawsuits against gun manufacturers, and passing a nationwide red flag law. Biden announced the measures alongside Vice President Kamala Harris and Merrick Garland, who Biden said would prioritize gun violence as head of the Department of Justice. A young gun violence prevention activist from New York City who appeared at the White House is Luis Hernandez. He's executive director of Youth Over Guns, the youth arm of New Yorkers Against Gun Violence. He explains how he got there. Advocates, survivors, and folks involved in gun violence prevention spaces were invited to the White House to unveil a proposal of six executive actions that the Biden administration will be taking to address gun violence. And so it was a surreal experience. Being at the White House in itself was, in a lot of ways, a tremendous accomplishment as, as a young person who's been fighting to create spaces 
for black and brown young folks impacted by gun violence and, and really forcing a lot of legislators' hands to have a seat at the table. This was a defining moment for many young people who are involved in movement spaces and organizing spaces who are doing just as much work as our counterparts and truly deserve to be at these tables to advise. And I feel that this administration is listening to us in a lot of ways. Um, over the past couple of months, we've been meeting with the White House, senior level staff members, and having conversations and, and making policy proposals to the team, proposing really what we knew as solutions to gun violence. And so today was the the, the solidification of so much of that as they unveiled an initial proposal that included so many of our suggestions. How did you get involved in the gun violence movement? At the age of 14, um, I was really involved just in systems um, and w- work as a whole. Um, after my brother was incarcerated for a crime he didn't commit and spent over 13 months on Rikers Island, it was really sort of my stepping point and, and really fighting for justice and safety across communities soon after um, I lost a friend in my community to gun violence. And so, so much of my work um, was was really responding to my surroundings um, as a reaction of survival, wanting to really fight for things that I knew my community specifically needed. And so really connecting with other organizers and activists over the past couple of years has been, in a lot of ways, an awakening moment for me as an activist um, and as a young person who was in high school at the time where I really got involved in so much of this. And it was what I can do to feel as though I was not just sitting in silence as so many people around me were in pain because of things that could be changed. What changes ultimately, not just what happened today, but what would you like to see? There's so much more work that can be done. Today was just a very first step in what can be done around gun violence prevention solutions. But there's a real opportunity for this administration over the next four years to transform the ways in which we've been addressing violence, criminal justice systems, incarceration, and so much more. The Movement for Black Lives and so many other people have called for the BREVE Act. What's the BREVE Act? The BREVE Act is a legislative proposal that's been adopted in many cities already throughout the country. There's a specific bill that's been introduced in the federal level, and we're wanting to work with legislators to enact the bill. The bill will reallocate resources and funding that has been targeted and and only has gone to law enforcement for the longest and really shift some of those resources to go to things like community violence intervention, go to things like youth programming that uplifts um, young people in schools and communities, go to community centers, go to hospital-based services, go to things like Medicaid and so many other programs that bring us safety, bring us healing, bring us what we need to be protected. And that's Luis Hernandez. He's a young gun violence prevention activist from New York City who appeared at the White House earlier this week. The National Rifle Association, which advocates for gun rights, criticized the measures that were brought up by President Biden. It said in a statement, the proposals Biden announced could require law-abiding citizens to surrender lawful property and enable states to expand gun confiscation orders. And in more national news, a Georgia lawmaker, Representative Park Cannon, was forcibly removed from the Georgia State House on March 25th after she knocked on Governor Brian Kemp's office door as he was signing a bill limiting voting access. The bill was supported by Republicans, motivated by the false claims of vote fraud by then-President Donald Trump and the sting of losing two highly contested Senate runoff elections to Democrats in this state that's apparently becoming more purple with each passing election, halfway between blue and blue. 
which means Democrat, and red, which means Republican. She was charged with obstruction of law enforcement and disruption of the General Assembly, both felonies, and faced the possibility of an eight-year prison sentence if convicted. But Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis said in a statement, after reviewing all of the evidence, I've decided to close the matter. Cannon's arrest sparked outrage among Democrats. The Election Integrity Act of 2021, or Senate Bill 202, imposes new voter ID requirements for absentee ballots, limits the number of drop boxes across the state, and gives state-level officials the power to shape county election boards, possibly allowing GOP officials to decide the ballot count in Democratic strongholds. Cannon said Kemp erased decades of sacrifice by signing the bill. In clear and gripping testimony at the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, witness Dr. Martin Tobin, a lung and critical care specialist at the Edward Hines Jr. VA Hospital and Loyola University's Medical School in Illinois, said the evidence is clear. George Floyd died of a lack of oxygen from being pinned to the pavement with a knee on his neck. Tobin told the jury that Floyd's breathing was severely constricted while Chauvin and two other Minneapolis officers held the 46-year-old black man down on his stomach. He said the lack of oxygen resulted in brain damage and caused his heart to stop. He added a new and chilling facet to the brutal event that had Chauvin press his knee into Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes. After pointing out the exact second the life went out of George Floyd, Dr. Tobin said Chauvin kept his knee on Floyd's neck for three minutes and 27 seconds. That's after Floyd had reached the point where there was not one ounce of oxygen left in his body. He also refuted that a pre-existing heart condition or the drugs fentanyl and methamphetamine found in small amounts in Floyd's system caused the death. Do any of those conditions have anything to do with the cause of Mr. Floyd's death in your professional opinion whatsoever? None whatsoever. And uh, again, what was the cause such that those conditions don't matter? The cause of death is a low level of oxygen that caused the brain damage and caused the heart to stop. You were also asked questions about substances in Mr. Floyd's system. I think you were asked questions about nicotine. Remember that? Yes. He didn't die from nicotine, did he? <laughs> no. Uh, you were asked questions about fentanyl and meth. Yes. Uh, any evidence that he died from meth? No, none. Uh, you were asked questions about um, whether he had ingested any fentanyl within five minutes of his time of death. Yes. Now, I, th I think you explained to us that if somebody is suffering from a fentanyl overdose, you would see a depression in the respiratory system. Yes. And, and depression means some reduction in the rate of ability to breathe. Correct. Did you see any depression in Mr. Floyd's ability to breathe whatsoever before he went unconscious? No, absolutely not. It, it was normal respiratory rate. Any evidence then that any fentanyl in the system depressed his breathing in any way whatsoever? No, and that's further borne out in the carbon dioxide. Thank you, Dr. Tolkien. No further okay. questions. High levels of carbon dioxide tend to show that a person has uh, died from lack of oxygen rather than any other source as the body continues to produce the carbon dioxide after the brain has died and the lungs are no longer taking in oxygen. The witness, Dr. Martin Tobin, He's a lung and critical care specialist. 
And President Joe Biden's special envoy to Central America, Ricardo Zuniga, said the White House is looking to create legal ways for Central American migrants to reach the United States. He said on a visit to Guatemala that the White House was looking to offer protections to migrants amid a push by Biden to reshape United States border policy. A jump in immigration from the three northern triangle countries of Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador has posed one of the biggest political challenges to the new Biden administration. Avi Chomsky is professor of history and coordinator of Latin American studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts. She says the problem isn't at the southern border between the U.S. and Mexico, but at the borders between Central America and Mexico. What we have is in 2009 in Honduras. Before 2009, there was hardly any out-migration from Honduras. There were no Honduran children massing on the border. But there was a popularly elected president who was trying to implement some policies of social reform, like raising the minimum wage and guaranteeing workers' rights. Well, U.S. corporations don't like that. This was under the Obama administration with Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State that the U.S. sponsored a coup in Honduras and put into place a right-wing neoliberal government that is implementing exactly the economic policies that the United States has wanted. What are the U.S. policies? It's right there in the title of Biden's Central America plan. Security and prosperity. Well, what does that mean? They sound like nice words. Security and prosperity in partnership with the people of Central America. Security means military aid. It means aid for policing. It means increasing the militarization of the police, forcing Mexico and Guatemala to enforce our border policies on their southern borders to try to stop people from even arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border, militarization of society in general, and prosperity means inviting in foreign investment. What that has meant has changed over time, but right now, the neoliberal prosperity plan that Biden and Trump and Obama and Bush, and we can keep going back probably to Clinton. Is he the beginning of the neoliberal uh, foreign policy? is based on three pillars. One is extractivism, mining and energy resources, to go in and extract mineral and energy resources from Central America. Two is the maquiladora, the flip side of deindustrialization of the United States, to invest in, build infrastructure for manufacturing, export-oriented manufacturing by U.S. companies in Central America. And three is tourism. There can be no workers' rights There can be no peasant land rights. There can be no rights for popular organizing or popular mobilization. It's a low-wage model. It's a low-tax model. It's a low-regulation model. It's a model that depends on basically granting sovereignty to U.S. corporations and taking sovereignty away from the people of Central America. And what we saw in Guatemala in 54, what we saw in Nicaragua in 79, what in what we saw in Guatemala and El Salvador in the 1980s and what we saw in Honduras in 2009 is that if a government challenges this model and tries to implement reforms that will actually help the poor people in their country, the foreign investors don't like it and the U.S. government stands behind them and rushes into the security side of military aid to crush any attempts to change the system there. Biden has talked about stopping the wall and things like that. Do you think that's going to change things? Biden has proposed some real changes to U.S. immigration policy, and some of those changes are very progressive and we should be supporting them. In terms of his policy towards Central America, 
I don't see a lot that gives me hope. For Central America, the only thing that Biden has done is reopen the asylum process for unaccompanied minors. And that's why we're talking so much about unaccompanied minors at the border. And that's why we're seeing what you just described of parents actually sending or throwing their children over the border in hopes that their children's lives will be saved by getting them into the United States. Avi Chomsky, she's a professor of history and coordinator of Latin American studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts. U.S. authorities caught more than 171,000 migrants along the U.S.-Mexico border in March, the highest monthly total in two decades and the latest sign of the mounting humanitarian challenge confronting Biden's administration. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. Yesterday, youth climate organizers from the Sunrise Movement held a mass protest at Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's in Brooklyn, where they demanded that he sign the movement's Good Jobs for All pledge. Dozens of young activists held signs demanding good jobs, livable future, and be brave, fight for us. They marched to the home of Senate Majority Leader Schumer to request he sign the pledge. And the battle over the East Side Coastal Resiliency Project, a $1.45 billion flood control project along the East River on the Lower East Side, is facing new opposition from local residents who say the mega project will destroy the 55-acre park used by thousands of locals. After losing a case against the project in the state Supreme Court, opponents have now filed an appeal, saying the city lied by withholding key information known as a value engineering report that blacked out key information about the true costs of the project to the neighborhood. A spokesperson for Save Our Parks is Tommy Loeb. They released a redacted report. What does redacted mean? It's like when you see on television a book done by an FBI or a CIA document. Hundreds of pages are totally blacked out. That's what they did. All the critical information was removed. Why is this report critical information? Upon our submitting the lawsuit, miraculously, they decided that a lot more information was not that critical. And they released the report again with fewer redacted pages. But there are still many, many redacted pages which leave us with many questions about the current $1.45 billion plan that destroys all of East River Park. So we are still proceeding with our litigation to get the full report unredacted. Uh, What was blacked out in this report that has now been released? Items like sourcing of materials, the time, certain items in the timeline, the issue of alienation, which we also have a lawsuit, was redacted entirely initially And now we find in the unredacted report, they discuss alienation many, many times and include hundreds of millions of dollars that might be due the community for loss of the use of East River Park. What does alienation mean? In New York State, we have very strict laws. This is a state law that requires that when you either change a park or remove a park from use, that the community is entitled to certain mitigation for the loss of that park or use. We wanted to have free ferry service available to residents of the Lower East Side so they could go to Governor's Island 
However, the city denied because they claimed that this was actually a park use, that they were not taking this park and changing it, but what they were doing was making it safe for the year 2100, where it might be flooded by sea level rise. The council member, Carlina Rivera, claimed uh, in a recent tweet that this happened, this release of these redacted documents occurred because of her. That's kind of curious, only because as late as January, she said publicly that there was no such report. She claimed that it did not exist, and that's why we had to go to court. The community did not accept that as a response because we felt, and we had evidence that there was a report. We then decided to go to court. We had to raise, we've raised over $30,000. We had to hire an attorney, and all of this work could have been done by our council member, but for some unknown reason, she was either lied to or she lied to the community. What happens next? The lawsuit is proceeding. One on the still redacted report and the other on the issue of alienation. Our ultimate goal is to ultimately get a plan which is much more conducive to the existing park without having to destroy it to save it. And that's Tommy Loeb. He's a spokesperson for Save Our Parks. In yet another anti-Asian assault, a 20-something woman seated by an outdoor dining structure on the Lower East Side was hit in the face. That's according to police. The cops say that on Wednesday, April 7th, about 7.40 p.m., the 25-year-old victim was sitting talking to her friends outside of uh, an ice cream shop on Grand Street between Forsyth and Eldridge when an unknown woman approached her. The stranger made anti-Asian statements and then slapped the victim in the face before fleeing. The victim refused medical attention. And today is Holocaust Remembrance Day, marking the murder of six million Jews instigated by the Nazi government of Germany during World War II. Greg Schneider is executive director of the Claims Conference, an organization negotiating for settlements to victims of the Holocaust. He says as the survivors age, they're interested in preserving the legacy, but are facing a situation where very little is being done to educate the young about what occurred. There are about 350,000 Holocaust survivors still alive throughout the world, of whom about 50,000 live in the United States. And what we've launched today as part of Holocaust Remembrance Day is a social media campaign of short videos of Holocaust survivors telling their experiences, but really focusing on how persecution began for them. People just don't wake up one day and say, I want to be a mass murderer. I want to be part of genocide that evolves in society and it started the point we're trying to make is that it started with words it started with speech and if it's acceptable to dehumanize another person then it becomes acceptable to hate that person and then it's a slippery slope the next thing you know there's violence and murder and then genocide so it's important to stop it to arrest that type of behavior at the beginning and this campaign really seeks to give context to the mass murder, the genocide, you know, the murder of six million Jews during World War II. How do you translate the unique experiences of Jews under the Nazi boot heel with events today that are very disturbing, whether it's the language of Donald Trump or the attacks on Asian Americans that's going on now? They're not of the same magnitude, but there are connections between them. One of the things about the Holocaust 
is the fact that simultaneously it is unique. It is particular to the Jewish people for many reasons. The scope and the breadth, the industrial organization with which mass murder occurred, the complicity of tens of millions of people across an entire continent, the murder, literally the murder of six million people, including one and a half million children. So there are many aspects that are unique and particular. But at the same time, many of the lessons that we should be learning from the Holocaust are universal. As we work with Holocaust survivors, one of the things that they're really focused on in, unfortunately, this last chapter of their lives is legacy and sharing the lessons and making sure that people understand for the Jewish people, which have been subjected to anti-Semitism, unfortunately, for thousands of years, but for other people also, that hate and hate speech leads to violence, that leads to murder, that leads to genocide. This is what can happen. Hate left unchecked can be devastating. That's part of this campaign, which is all driven by Holocaust survivors to say, understand what happened in the Holocaust because it is applicable to your place in society today. Great. Anything you'd like to add? Part of the reason that we felt compelled to do this is that over the past several years, we've done surveys of what Americans, particularly young Americans, millennials, know about the Holocaust. And it was really shocking and disturbing. So, for instance, we found that 48% of millennials in the United States cannot name one concentration camp or ghetto that existed during the Holocaust. And we know that there were over 40,000 throughout Europe and even in North Africa. But to not be able to name Auschwitz or to know what Auschwitz is, right, something that's synonymous with evil, the most evil place on the planet, is really concerning. It was 56% of U.S. millennial and Gen Zs that were not able to identify Auschwitz. Better education is essential. That's why this campaign, it started with words. Hashtag it started with words. You can look at startedwithwords.org. Give some context to it so that there can be critical thinking about how it's possible that in an advanced, sophisticated society like Germany and Europe of the 1930s and early 40s, this kind of mass murder could have happened. And if it could have happened then, that means it can happen now. And so we must, we must be vigilant. And that's the message of Holocaust survivors. Have educational systems across the United States dropped the ball? Have they failed? Society as a whole has not aligned the proper resources with things that we say are important. So as an example, in our survey, one of the questions was, is it important? Do you believe it's important that Holocaust education should be taught in schools? And overwhelmingly, I think it was over 90% of the respondents said yes. So people believe that it's important. It's just I don't think that we've given teachers the tools, proper training, enough resources to be able to do an excellent job on something that's so fundamental to human rights for this generation and for future generations. Greg Schneider is executive director of the Claims Conference, an organization negotiating for settlements to victims of the Holocaust since 1951. And that's some of the news for Thursday, April 8th, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.